The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. It's been over 200 years since he was born. People still absorb his parks and public gardens in more than 5,000 communities across the North American continent. The goal is to give the common man in this new world the same opportunities to experience creation as any king in his private preserve in the old world. Frederick Law Olmsted is prevalently pronounced the father of American landscape architecture. In this episode 63, a word with Frederick Law Olmsted, interpreted by Kirk R. Brown. Kirk is a member of the International Garden Communicators Hall of Fame. He is a green achiever being recognized with many industrial awards. He represented Joanne Kostecki Garden Design as a leader in the design bill industry. At America's Oldest Garden in Charleston, South Carolina, he worked as National Outreach Coordinator. He is the past president of GardenCom. In the U.S. and Canada, he's delivered hundreds of keynote addresses, guest lectures, teaching symposia, and certified instruction over the past quarter of a century. He's also known to interpret historic horticulturalists and international dignitaries as John Bartram, Frederick Law Olmsted, among many others. He still finds time to cultivate his own private display garden. Join him now as he unveils his views of Olmsted and this bicentennial year. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Mr. Olmstead, would you take us back to when you were 36 years old and tell us what was your most valuable mistake up to that point? I sometimes have problems remembering what happened yesterday. Remembering what happened when I was 36 takes me to a point in time where I felt that I would never wake up that somehow whatever hope I had of being properly engaged in an adult employment was never going to occur. However, it was at a time when seemingly everything in the world that I had touched or attempted had turned to dross. With that, when you are at the bottom, looking up from the bottom of that big black pit that you feel yourselves in, God smiles sometimes. And when he smiles, he puts in front of you an opportunity that unless you'd been in that pit of despair, you wouldn't think was a positive. I went over the brink of bankruptcy with a publishing company that my father had financed to put me on my feet in the world of communicating, largely garden communicating. But in that day, 
when publishers have cash in the drawer and decide that it's better in their pockets and they skip town, I was left holding an empty bag. When my sanity was at risk, there were a group of friends, Dutch elders from the state of New York, who looked at me in my circumstance and they said, without much thinking about it, we have a job for you, sir. And this was from Washington Irving, whom you might have heard, James Hamilton, the son of Alexander Hamilton, Peter Cooper of Cooper Hewitt later, and David Dudley Field, and among many, many others. They said, in response to my question, what is this job all about? They said, we believe that from your practical training as an agriculturist, from all of your horticultural writings, from your talents and from your obvious character, I took them at their word on that, we believe you eminently qualified for the duties of the office of superintendent of the capital T, the Central Park of New York. They wanted me to be a crew leader of one of the largest public works projects that had been undertaken since the construction of the pyramids. They thought by giving me this job, it would put my feet under my own table and allow me to support the family that I had inherited and adopted after my brother's death. So you see, this is a laugh because being a construction foreman on a landscape project the size of Central Park allowed me into other rooms and gave me the ability to meet other people, most notably among them, Calvert Vox. Of course, from that participation, from that connection, from that wonderful start at 36, climbing out of the black pit and going on into the greater international world of garden design. That's how you find me, sir. From that point till now, you have to consider all of the other doors that opened, designing the country's first great urban and public park. It was a democratization of space. That's the most important aspect that we were driving. All of the big parks of the old world were private preserves, were aristocratic in their founding, or country homes of the elite and moneyed. They were not open to the general public. Here we were designing a space, an urban space of green that would allow people at all levels of income to rub elbows and participate in a great and refreshing space. Out of that, the other things that came to my table were the obvious connections of making plans for residential subdivisions. I was ultimately asked to design a World's Fair. And in that regard, I was one of the few who designed a fair that actually made money. Mostly the cities in which the Olmsted Partnership worked were green belts. It wasn't just one isolated urban jewel. They were a necklace. They were a green necklace surrounding all of the major cities in which we did work, involving park ways and park sides with garden views. And with all of that, the infrastructure that necessarily 
came along with the design was an increasing awareness of public health and sanitation. I was also involved at the beginning of the American Red Cross with standardizing field operations, with organizing national outreach and coordination, and with putting women in nursing wards. I was also there at the beginning in trying to inventory the natural resources of Yosemite, and that began the National Parks Movement. I also encouraged managed forestry. I was the first person here in this country to hire a forester to help develop plans for management of 137,000 acres in Biltmore, not less. Governor Pinchot, as he later came to be known, was the first man that held the post at the National Center where he managed the national parks and forests. I was always involved in garden communication. I was a syndicated New York Times columnist. I was an abolitionist. I believed strongly in the development of cemetery arboreta where families could mourn the death of their loved ones. And I was the first one to be recognized for the design, implementation, and successful development of riparian restoration using early sustainable practices because overarching all of these individual jobs, I believe that environmental health was also humanity's welfare. Eventually, many of the things that we did for the first time or did for all of those who came later to ask us to repeat our success, eventually we codified most of the things that we were doing and we were there at the beginning writing a syllabus for the American Society of Landscape Architects when Harvard graduated its first class. That's the beginning. And through it, we've tried to reach a point that you can look back and decide whether what we do, whether creating public parks, whether recognizing national parks, whether doing things as a green infrastructural implementation, whether that is garden design, whether it is landscape design, or whether it is landscape architecture. I have certainly left the responsibility of that to all of the generations that came since the implementation of Central Park of New York. So let's look at the Central Park of New York. Where you started to turn around was when you got the job as superintendent. How did you make the jump from superintendent to being credited as the designer and builder of Central Park? I, I would never accept that title. I was mentored by a man far greater than I. His name was Andrew Jackson Downing, and he lived upstate New York. The concept of Central Park and the concept of public urban horticulture was his. He was the first man here in this country to successfully write that there was a model to be offered and followed in the development of landscape practices. He wrote and published a book in 1841 called A Treatise on the Theory and Practice of Landscape Gardening. It was his idea in the 1840s, what he called the picturesque landscape has great advantage for the common man. 
the raw materials of grass, water, and woods are at once appropriated with so much effect and so little art in the picturesque mode, and the charm is so great. You'll recall that 200 years ago, I was born. It was also the same year that Napoleon died. There was a great turning where people decided it was no longer appropriate to design landscapes in the French style. The formality of trimmed hedges and topiaries and the development of boxed and hothouse-grown examples of tropical horticulture. What they wanted was a natural or romantic view of the world. Downing's response to that was his development of the picturesque here in North America. So while the international turned on what was their term called romanticism, Downing's belief was that it needed to be picturesque. He brought a man from England who was just spectacular with the development of line and architectural standards. His name was Calvert Vox. So we had Calvert Vox doing all of the housing plans for Downing's models. Downing began a magazine called The Horticulturist, where he promoted all of the values of horticulture and agriculture, how to design, creating a design for living. He encouraged all of us to plant spacious parks in our cities and unclose their gates as wide as the gates of mourning to the whole people. I was a very small part of the initial concept. When they were looking for the construction foreman, Downing had been killed in a steamboat accident on the Hudson River. While they were searching for the plan, they had more than 30 proposals submitted for what Central Park was to become. Calvert Vox had a concept, and he asked me if I would join him in its presentation to the committee. My thought was that a proper city park should provide escape from the city. We solved all of the inherent problems of the design so that nature of the space would be one of unending vistas of green and the lawns would seem to go on forever. With Vox asking me to be a partner at that low point in my life, my answer was an unqualified, sir, this partnership is on. We called our design and our proposal, Greensward. I would still think of it with that name. Of course, everyone else has just taken it to heart and made it Central Park. I was 36 years old. I had a neighbor in Hartford as I was growing up and then on the speaking circuit in later years. And Mark Twain, you might know him as Samuel Longhorns Clemens, said that Age is an issue of mind over matter. If you don't mind, it doesn't matter. What were some of the challenges in the implementation of the Central Park design? The money was coming from Albany, and the old Dutch money that still remained somewhat in the city was very concerned that the Tammany Hall organization of downtown New York politics would get their hands on the money before it would feed through to enrich, encourage, and grow the project. The old Dutch burghers 
wanted an honest man as the paymaster. And so at the end of those long days, I was the man handing money to the day workers with cash on the barrel head, paying them for moving the hundreds and hundreds and millions of cubic yards of soil that was transported to do those effortless looking hills and dales and rambles that became Central Park. The park itself is a democratic development of the highest significance. We can never, never, ever forget that public urban horticulture is that. It is the extreme expression of democracy. And simply put, we were looking at the three grand elements of Downing's definition of picturesque or pastoral landscape. Those three elements remain the same today as they were then. The symphony of grass, water, and woods, joined together with many, many artificial tricks of the trade into one uncommon space. At Central Park, we also added what would be in our concept the only sculptural element that was to be included in the final design. That was the Bethesda fountain. With Bethesda, we wanted it to be similar to the quote from the New Testament, John chapter 5, verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. This becoming a place of union for all of those tired and poor of the city who would otherwise not have a green space with good public water. It became that, certainly, after the Civil War, and even up until these days when the symbol of the fountain, that angel of the waters that was given to the first woman who ever won a sculptural commission in the city of New York, later to become Angels in America. Through all of this, that symbol of health and well-being has been guarded through all of its artistic progress. What other, as you referred to them as tricks in the landscape design, were implemented in the park? There were requirements, as most things are. They had to have cross streets, but we didn't want to interrupt the view of green. We sunk the roads and It was unique in its concept because all of those cross streets that were mandated in the design brief were not seen once you were at grade or at the park level, so that all of the sheep's meadow and the grand lawns of Central Park were seemingly undivided, and the cars would travel underneath that layer. The other thing was fresh water. The 800 and some odd acres of Central Park had to include what was an existing reservoir. The walk around the reservoir had to be included in the acreage. And to do that, we made the north part of the park into what I called a ramble. If you take the word ramble, it puts me back into my childhood. I had rides with my father and mother in the woods and fields. Those days, we were in search of the, well, the picturesque. Any man then, who sees things differently than the mass of ordinary men is classified as one who has a defect of the eye and a defect of the brain. 
who would think that you could move mountains to create a distant view while the major cross-street thoroughfares of a major urban environment would traffic unwitnessed with the calm and peace of nature around you. In later years, it gave the common man access to a broader world. In the early days, when the park first opened, what we discovered is that entrepreneurs of the city would get a chance to meet and greet people who were not of or in their class, and everyone came together on the lake to ice skate. That had never been accomplished in an urban environment before, where the lowest and the highest achieved self-standing stature over a pair of ice skates. What other ways did you incorporate the blending of the classes? There were several types of roads. There were access roads for tradesmen, and then there were the carriage trade highways that would tour the park and allowed for another whole type of merchant in the hiring of horse-drawn vehicles that are still there conveying tourists into and around the park today because of the way the layout was designed. We also included space for a zoo and for ornamental horticulture and the display of flowers. It also gave space for the Metropolitan Museum. And then, as you'll see over all these years, many, many other opportunities for people to regard themselves highly by installing other busts and portraiture. There's Cleopatra's Needle, which was that large obelisk that came from Egypt that has its own following up above the museum. It's all part and parcel of creating the ambiance of nature in an artificial way. You had some experiences of your own in walking tour in England. How did those influence your view of design, and how did you take those and implement them in the park? The only difference is that in England, what we were looking at in the assortment of grass, water, and woods was that most of the developed areas were done for members of the aristocracy. They were country homes at the time previous generation, they were landscapes designed and achieved by Lancelot. They called him Capability Brown. Those assortments of grass, water, and woods were no different in concept, really, for the public parks that we were designing. The only difference is that in public-funded projects, they had access for people of all social classes. There was no admission, no gate. I've heard it said you become who you hang out with. Tell us about some of the people that you have surrounded yourself with. <laughs> that, that, that's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, be careful how you approach life. Because I was given a certain amount of credit from the number of people that Central Park of New York employed, and the fact that I could schedule them on great work shifts and get a lot of product and production out of disparate workers, the United States government took notice. In very short order, I was contacted by President Lincoln and several of the officers of the army. They asked me if I would help them create a sanitary commission for relief of the wounded during the battle between the states. 
at that juncture, we were fighting the Peninsular Campaign. I solved some of the problems by requiring immediacy, you know, functioning triage, putting women in the wards to help as nurses. Clara Barton was an amazing addition to the group of people that helped with this and requisitioning a ship to transport wounded from the battlefield to military field hospitals, which were then on a new model of sanitation and security. So that, again, organization, identification, and targeted work became a hallmark. In the same way of discussion, I was asked to join a group of people that were then in the West to inventory the natural resources of what was then Yosemite Valley and to report to the federal government on whether those resources should be made available to commercial interests like mining interests, logging interests, railroad interests, or whether they should be preserved and protected for the common man, for what could be done to make this a democracy. My report, which was the majority, came with the help and assistance of another man at the time, John Muir, who believed very firmly that the park grounds, the federal lands, should be closed off to all access, should definitely be preserved from any commercial development, but that it also should be closed to the public because the public would not understand how to preserve natural resources. Whereas the report that I signed and sent said that Yosemite should be held, guarded, and managed for the free use of the whole body of people forever. The Act of Congress that was signed into law by Abraham Lincoln in 1864 took that and changed it very, very marginally. Lincoln's statement was Yosemite Valley is to be held for public use, resort, and recreation, inalienable for all time. He liked that word, inalienable. But it was, at the time, the first concept of a national park. And the same thing, then, is held to be true for those cities that called almost immediately thereafter. They called from southern cities that were destroyed during the war, Charleston, Atlanta, the Deep South, the marginal states, Buffalo, outstandingly, Chicago, Boston. What they wanted was a green belt in Boston, the emerald necklace that combined areas of existing green infrastructure, like the Arnold Arboretum, with also uh, existing green infrastructure of cemeteries, which were now becoming a major part of the public need where people would take luncheons and their families and stage trips to those areas of cemeteries that were of special remembrance to them because of the dead of the war. Cemeteries and existing arboreta were conjoined with parkways and elemental use of legacy tree plantings became an outstanding degree of memorialization that I think is being followed today fairly closely. What was your first experience like when you visited Niagara Falls? Niagara Falls was a tourist attraction then and now. As a tourist attraction then, it was overrun by people who felt that they could commercialize the view. 
They could own frontage up against the falls. I felt that this was wrong, that there was no justification for taking what is a national right and making it to be a public carnival. From the very first visit that I made when we were in Buffalo to Niagara Falls, I maintained strongly that the federal government had to purchase and take ownership of all of the frontage that surrounded the American side of Niagara Falls, and again, put it to public use. That is why and how we have today those great overlooks that can appreciate what is there as one of America's greatest natural resources. Did that vision at Niagara Falls work into the work you did in Buffalo? Only as an adjunct. I think in the one case, you're looking at urban infrastructure that was paid for at the local or regional or state level. With Niagara Falls, that became a national connection. If in those areas you could put all of the public right-of-way to use, meaning you could, you could organize regional with state and national, then you had the triple play. Then you had the aggregate of concern and interest in developing a major national park. On the urban side, on the, the city side, you had to have enlightened communities where Buffalo was the terminus of the Western movement with the canal. They had money, they had interest, and they wished to become an urban center. There you were connecting a greenway with the cemeteries and the parkways and an urban environment that then became the grounds for a World's Fair. In Boston, you had a very much historic connection to the land and their green spaces just needed the connectedness of the highways that were designed to include parkways. The back bay in the day was an open sewer. The city pressure was to develop west. So the first order of business was to clean up the waterway. And to that event, we wanted to rename it. That's when it became the Fens. And the Boston Fens turned what was practically an open sewer into clear, clean water that was the centerpiece of the Western development of Boston. Fenway was green from its inception. I've always wondered why the big wall in Fenway Park is green. I really no longer even think about that. It's just part of what west of Boston is. So you did something similar in Chicago too, didn't you? Chicago started out as a bankrupt subdivision design. In the previous life, I had designed a residential subdivision. We had a lot of the land studies already done. It was my concept to use what I knew of the area surrounding the urban core and build it up to become what then was called the Columbian Exposition of 1893. All of the money that came to the city for all of its industry and the slaughterhouses and the fact that America was moving west, all of that came together when in that great midway, we were able to turn on lights at night and it was the first illuminated spectacle of a fair whether it was Edison or Westinghouse who got the contract, all that mattered was that great white city appeared even whiter at night in an area that had created waterscapes. 
the lagoons, and each of the lagoons had water ships built that were evocative of international modes of boating travel. So there were Venetian gondolas, there were Chinese junks, there was the New England dinghies. All of these came together so that people could ride across the water and enjoy the sparkle and gleam of lights at night off of water. And during the day, large open areas of green grass so that people felt that they were enclosed in a natural environment. All the buildings were painted the same color. Do you think the overlying theme of your works would be the theater of the park? I think that's just a lovely thought. If you think of gardening as an unnatural act, I suppose you could call it theater. I believe that if it is to be theatrical, it must be extremely natural and of a certain way, very romantic, because that is the age in which all of our designs were based. You know, it was a very short period of time internationally but it was the focus of an entirely new form of urban horticulture. People had never experienced nature in all seasons, at all times of day, in the way that had allowed aristocrats to have parties in landscapes. Now anyone could aspire to having a celebration in a public garden. That had never occurred before been taken on into the individual home now, too, I would think. I would think also. There are so many practitioners of the art that you just have to engage someone and understand the complexity of those types of partnerships. We could not work for just anyone. We had to work with those people who felt that the product that we designed and installed was the product that would give them an expanded life experience. I have to quote someone who was a field nurse in one of our field hospitals during the war. His name was Walt Whitman, and he was part of the bohemian culture that grew up in New York City. One of the things he said that attracted my attention because of so much shared experience was that after you have exhausted what there is in business, in politics, after you have exhausted even conviviality and so on, and and after you have found that none of these other experiences finally satisfy, what remains? And Whitman's answer was nature. Nature remains. And if we start with nature and create a working partnership on the development and implementation of natural designs. That is what is going to be ultimately satisfying. Absolutely. People do get caught up in functionality, you know, don't they? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the function is viewed as the product, whereas functionality in the hands of the creative or in the hands of a complementary partnership Functionality is just the need that's wrapped in the gift box. I am certain that it's the gift box that maintains nature in all of its diversity over the period of time that gardens can be maintained. Only those that survive into the second, third, or tenth generation are those gardens that are going to ultimately prove 
hardy. You know through experience that everyone talks about horticultural endowments, but it is at base the quality of the ornament, the quality of the space that gets people to come out and experience the wonders of nature. Do you ever sleep? No. No. In fact, there are many people who would take trains in order to sleep. The rolling nature of that mechanism did give people that kind of release. I could never sleep on a train. And to make up for that, I wrote many of the sentences were run on and people have accused me of chasing pages of Falscap looking for my first period. It's not true. I just felt there was never an end to what needed to be explained and defined. Not sleeping on trains, really not sleeping well into most of my travels in age did create its own set of problems. In and around the era of the Chicago World's Fair, I was also charged with full responsibility of the design in Asheville of Biltmore. And that was 137,000 acres, not a small tract of land. Also, we were doing the cityscapes in Boston, still working in Chicago overall. And one man or one company is ill-equipped to deal with all of the on-site obstacles that are presented on a daily basis in any working environment. My children, John and Rick, filled in for me in many regards. I really also wanted there to be the continuing order of the types of things we were growing on, because some were so new and some were viewed as being so revolutionary. If we could write about them, if you could put them down on paper and regularize them, then many, many more communities that maybe could not afford the Olmsteads or did not wish to afford the Olmsteads could still take the playbook and apply it to certain urban situations. Putting in a glass house in a park, putting in entertainments, amusements in a park after the World's Fair, having a midway of entertainments was something that everyone did. At the end of days, the government, Washington, called the Capitol Dome was completed during the last years of the war. As the war ended, the Capitol building was completed, but the West Front had never been addressed. So Washington came to me and said, would I consider designing the West Front of the Capitol? Until then, we were pretty much an East Coast nation. Everyone came into the city from the East. It was after that, and although never said by the man to whom it's credited, go West, young man, we felt that opening up the vistas to the setting sun and the Western states was by far a statement of union over disunion. And so I undertook to design 270 acres as the West Front and Park of the Capitol. Now, that included all of the marble terraces, all of the staircases, all of the landings, all of what we now know as America's front yard. And the next generation, my youngest son, Rick, was on the Macmillan Commission, which planned how to join the West Front of the Capitol with what was then the new installation of the Lincoln Memorial. Between Rick and I, we covered the acreage that became the great Smithsonian lawns 
and America's front yard, not the least bit of which is not incorporating Arlington National Cemetery as a part of what is viewed as the parks system of Washington, D.C. The West Front was under construction from 1874 until 1892. There were any number of change orders and decisions that could not be made by a combined House of Congress. There were orders made and countermade and orders changed, and yet the basics of the design remained in place. However, in my capacity throughout those 18 years, I did have the opinion that, in short, the capital of the Union manifests nothing so much as disunity in its consideration of what it wants to have done. But we did ultimately work it all out. Yeah, worked out really well, I think. Took two generations, but yes, we did complete the lawns. Would you talk more about your sons, your legacies? It's a long story and a changing demographic. My brother died young, but he had married and had three children, the eldest of which, John Olmsted, was my nephew. At the time, my brother had written and charged me with taking care of his wife, Mary, and the kids. As these things do generally happen, we fell in love and managed a life aside. I married my brother's widow and adopted his three children. John became the outstanding force of management in the office in Brookline when we established our headquarters there. He was a manager of excellent and national renown. He could take very complex subjects and reduce them to simple terms. One of his systems was done for Seattle, and he was in charge of that from almost the inception. My youngest then natural-born son was Frederick Jr. They call him Rick. Well, as I was feeling less capable after the World's Fair, Rick legally changed his name to Frederick Law Olmsted. So there was always someone of that name in the office signing checks up until almost the very end of the partnership. The children represented who we were as a family. And I think they represented this nation well in regard to how much they considered the importance of democracy in the access to public urban horticulture. They were great in their day and way. In today's gardening world, what would you tell us to do? Something that it never occurred to me to say in my youth, in my naivete, I looked at gardens and how they're designed as something that's to be considered permanent, that urban horticulture could be permanent infrastructure if it was properly designed. What I have been reading is the attempt from several social influencers, garden influencers, who are now decrying the use of certain species of long-lived trees just because they cannot be easily cut down. My advice to any garden designer, landscape gardener, or landscape architecture is to plant legacy trees for just the opposite effect, because we know trees can provide shade for our descendants. And if we do the right thing, and plant those trees that we know husband 
horticulture, providing all of the appropriate environments for pollinators and birds and animals, creating the canopy of major cities. Those trees that develop elaborate and long-lived root systems, the oaks, the maples, all of those historically great trees that we have used in this country out of our deciduous forests is what should come out of our garden development. And public horticulture needs to think in the long term of what can provide sanctuary for our generations. What's your advice for today's landscape architect or garden designer? It's a very simple answer to what becomes a very complex question. Let us think not for present delight, nor for present use alone. Let us not think in terms of the negative, but let us seek such work as our descendants will thank us for. Let us think, all of us that work in ornamental and public horticulture, let us think that a time is to come when all men and women and children will say, see this, this our forebearers did for us. That is our outstanding challenge for anything we touch and anything we choose to call an improvement of nature. Tell us how people may connect with you. I can be connected with on most social media platforms. You can look for me as Kirk R. Brown or shop for me as Frederick Law Olmsted or John Bartram. And I will respond to most nudges. And my phone is available on many sites. This has been Episode 63, A Word with Frederick Law Olmsted, interpreted by Kirk R. Brown. Thank you, Kirk. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.